The Electorette is brought to you by you. Seriously, it's listeners like you who inspire me to keep going. And if you're one of Electorette's newest Patreon supporters, I'd like to sincerely thank you. Your support means everything. And it helps Electorette continue to amplify the voices of women. And if you'd like to become a new supporter of Electorette, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash electorette. There are some great bonuses there for patrons at all levels. And again, I want to thank all of my listeners so much from the bottom of my heart. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. When I first discovered Shelley Grapey's work, she studies transnational feminism and looks at activism and resistance through the lens of marginalized women outside of Western cultures. So when I discovered her work, I was intrigued, but I was also befuddled. I couldn't wrap my brain around the way that women in other countries, non-Western cultures, I just couldn't grasp many of the elements of their women's movement. It just wasn't computing for me. I'll give you an example. In Shelley's book, Narrating a Psychology of Resistance, she examines the women's autonomous movement in Nicaragua. First of all, this is the home of Daniel Ortega, so I was completely surprised that their women's movement in many ways was far, far ahead of ours. They don't look to Western women's movements as examples. They have words in their vernacular, entire phrases and concepts within their women's movement that we just don't have here. It's so fascinating, and I hope you learn a lot from this interview. I sure did. So here's my conversation with Shelley Gravy. Shelley Gravy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So your book explores the psychology of resistance by looking at the women's autonomous movement in Nicaragua. And, you know, I think that most people, including myself, are unfamiliar with this movement. I mean, can you give us a bit of history behind this movement? Sure. And and I'll start by saying that I believe that the women's social movement in Nicaragua is one of the most coordinated and mobilized social movements in the world that focuses on women's human rights. And it has its history or its roots in the Sandinista Revolution. And the Sandinista Revolution started in the 1970s in Nicaragua when people across the country were coming together to try to bring down a 40-year-old dictatorship in Nicaragua. And one of the things that is unique about the Sandinista movement is the involvement of women in that revolution. And women were involved in unprecedented numbers compared to any other social revolution to date. And they were involved in in volume and in the kind of work that they were doing. So, for example, women were training and fighting in guerrilla warfare next to their male counterparts. Women were also commanders and they were involved in strategic planning to take down the dictator. And the Sandinistas at the time created space, a women's only space. In 1977, they started an organization that was for women only. But one of the problems was that although women were involved, they were experiencing what is very common in social revolutions where the male-dominated party will send messages like, once the aims of the revolution have been achieved, then we can focus on women's issues. So although the Sandinista revolution provided the space to bring women together, it at the same time denied strategic gender interests. And when the revolution did, in fact, gain power in 1979, women's efforts continued to be thwarted in part because the male-dominated party 
was adhering to a national agenda that was very focused on addressing Reagan-imposed policies, among which were the Contra War. And so in the 1980s, listeners may have heard of the Contra War. Maybe they remember it. Maybe, you know, it's not part of the history that we're learning. But in the 1980s, the Reagan administration perceived the efforts being made by the Sandinistas as an economic threat. And as a result, Reagan administered the CIA to recruit and support counterforces, which became known as the Contras. And so throughout the 1980s, Nicaragua was engaged in a war to try to hold and maintain the administrative power that the Sandinistas had. And as a result, women's issues continued to be on the margins. And after a decade of being at war, the country elected a new administration in 1990. And and that administration was a U.S.-backed administration that upheld largely neoliberal principles that went in complete contrast to the revolutionary principles and resulted in an explosion of the disenfranchisement and oppression women were already experiencing. So the women who had been organized got together and said, you know, the Revolutionary Party wasn't acknowledging our interests and the ruling party is not going to. So we need to strategically think about how to mobilize and declare autonomous from any of these parties. And so in the early 1990s, they held two major events. One of them, they titled Diverse But United in 1992 to recognize that women from different sectors all had a vested interest in upholding women's rights. And the key starting point for them was rejecting the social obstacles to actualizing women's rights. And so it was in the early 1990s that a coordinated, mobilized effort began. And what that looked like were 150 organizations that all had leaders, that all came together. They wrote bylaws. They held annual meetings. They coordinated on strategic interests rather than having one organization develop an interest or a protest or a topic. They all worked together to ensure that they were engaging in action that would lead to change. And that was really the seeds of what we see now as their modern movement. Right. So so was there hostility within the Sandinista movement or were their issues just marginalized? Right. So I think both were true. I think a lot of women were in high powered positions and felt supported in engaging in the work that they were engaging and that happened. But there is also a long documented history where there were abuses of male power and I don't know how much we want to go into this, but the current president, some some would call dictator of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, was also one of the leaders during a Sandinista revolution. And um, some people will call that ironic because he was the public face of sort of the people's movement and power to the people in 1970s and 1980s. And he's now running as a sort of unchecked dictator. But people that were involved in the Sandinista party in the 70s and 80s would say a lot of these concerns were happening then. And there was an exploitation of male power then that led to silencing women's concerns. Or as time went on in 1990, there were very explicit uses of political persecution administered by Daniel Ortega, who still identified as a Sandinista at the time that were meant to silence women. Right. So something else happened in in the 90s or in 1990 specifically that kind of drove this movement further into action, right? The neoliberal policies Mm -hmm. under the new president, right? So what, what were those policies and how were they oppressive to women? Well, one example of the uh, neoliberal policies is that there was a shift in 1990 from sort of state-run factories and uh, policies to a privatized model. 
And we were seeing this happen all over the world. And, and it grew in the 1980s and sort of exploded in the 1990s, where there was this championing of privatization and free market policies with the idea that this everybody could benefit from this when, in fact, we know that that's not the case. So in Nicaragua specifically in 1990, one of the things that happened is prior to the shift in power, most of the state-run factories, and they were clothing factories, shoe factories, these sort of things, uh, were state-run and regulated, which meant that employees could unionize and they were paid a living wage and had access to things like education and healthcare. And with the change in an agenda and the support of these neoliberal policies, what happened is that all of these factories got privatized. The immediate effect was that there were large parts of the population, predominantly women, who became unemployed. These factories shut down. They had no social safety net until the new factories that were privatized were put in. And these privatized factories had no regulation. So they were not obliged to pay a living wage or provide access to health care. And they were pulling on a very desperate labor force that no longer had jobs. And so that was one example of the immediate effect that we saw on the unemployed were largely women who were working in these factories who had, out of desperation, taken the jobs in the privatized companies and were now working for poverty wages. So, you know, I, I do see a lot of parallels to, you know, Western feminism and the current women's movement that we're having now. But w- the difference that I see that's really interesting, and I want to go back a bit because you said they took these kind of disparate women's groups and grouped them together into a larger movement. And I guess the only parallel I can draw is the progressive democratic movement and the resistance here that's being driven primarily by women. However, it's still under the umbrella of Democrats or under the umbrella of progressives, right? And it isn't a movement onto its own. I just thought that that was interesting that they kind of took it a step further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were very strategic in doing that with the understanding that the key starting point was about actualizing women's rights. And women's rights are violated across parties, across backgrounds, across class, across race, across sexual orientation. They were very explicit that women have diverse issues and those issues need to be worked on from various social locations and no political party is going to have a vested interest in that, that these aren't, these aren't issues associated with political parties. Parties. So much of their strategy involved declaring themselves as autonomous from parties so that they would not get pulled into working on a party platform or swayed by different political party interests. Right. That actually seems pretty smart. That seems advantageous. I mean, you're, you're right. Like most of these issues, if you're thinking of like reproductive justice, for instance, that should not be mm-hmm. that should not be a partisan issue. But in in this in the states in the West it is right, and so I can see the advantage of doing it this way. Right, and I think one of the things you're raising is a really important point about this kind of feminism because I think that one of the issues with feminism in the states is that we have a contentious history with much of feminism initially being defined by predominantly by white women from a middle-class background, not recognizing the ways that intersecting identities impact people's experience of gender. And that has shifted now. We have a much more mainstream understanding of what people have come to call intersectional feminism, recognizing that we can't address issues of gender justice without understanding that women have overlapping identities, that experiences of race or ethnicity or class or sexual orientation all impact the way that we experience oppression and discrimination. And that is something that I think has been understood in Nicaragua. And in many ways, they are 30 years ahead of us in understanding this. And I think that as women from the West understand feminism, there's this assumption that we've got it figured out first and that now we need to go help 
help people in other places advance feminist agendas, whereas Nicaragua beat us to the punch right. 30 years ago and has understood this. Right, right. And I noticed that reading it. And, and I mean, the thing is, is that the, the hostility that women face there is is much greater, right? Like, I think that, you know, when I was reading your book, you know, there's criminalization of feminist activists and their activities, and there's, there's greater hostility, but they're addressing it. They're much more advanced than we are here. Well, I, so I would say two things about that. One is that that, that is one way that I feminism differing in Nicaragua is that it includes a platform for action. And in the States, I think while the desire for that action might be there and this desperate want for change is there, we haven't figured out how to mobilize in concrete ways where we can change legislation. And not to say that we never have. Obviously, we have made progress on these issues, but the women's movement is not so mobilized that we are sitting around a table together figuring out how to write a law, for example, that acknowledges women's human rights when we don't even use the discourse of human rights in the United States. But the other thing that I would point out is that while there were examples of political persecution that were extraordinarily hostile and dangerous. It's also the case that we see these kind of examples of backlash here. And one of the points I think made by the feminists in Nicaragua is that whenever women are becoming politically involved, we see impressive acts of viciousness as examples of backlash. And I would argue that current administration we have in the United States would never have come about if it weren't for the extreme levels or displays of sexism we have. So one example is I don't think it's any coincidence that the first time we have a competent, experienced woman running and demonstrating her political involvement, that we also see overt displays of boisterous masculinity and sexism that are by and large embraced by our population. Right. So I think that is an example of the, the extreme hostility and it manifests differently in each country. But I think that we are in a situation now where we're, we're witnessing perverse abuses of authoritarian power precisely because of the context of sexism and the threat that women's involvement in politics was in the States. Wow. So what do you think is unique about the psychology of resistance for these women in comparison to to us in the West, right? Their specific psychology. Well, I observed three main components in the mechanisms or the psychology of resistance among the women. And I'm not sure that those components by themselves were unique. The examples that went into them might have been location specific. But I think the unique part is the understanding of collaboration and coordination and working together and, and the mobilization that occurred. And, and that by itself is a very feminist model, recognizing that there is not necessarily an inherent hierarchy in these things, that everybody's coming to the table to work on it. And there's respect for various perspectives and roles in efforts being made. In my experience doing feminist activism in the United States is that when somebody has a good idea, they start a new organization rather than figuring out what organization they can support. And when an organization has a good idea, they might develop an action or a protest or an event or an intervention. And all of those are very good and very well intended, but they aren't coordinated. And if we could instead put our efforts into coordinating and working together, we might be able to affect larger structural change rather than making impact in individual women's lives. You know, I think a good example of that, I think that's an excellent point. I think a good example of that is the fight against, you know, gun violence, right? You know, I started looking into what other organizations, aside from the, you know, the bigger ones, the ones that get the most attention. And there are actually lots of those organizations all across the country and their efforts aren't organized. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 
it's really interesting. Well, I think, so there, I mentioned there were three components that I looked at in these women. And one of them was this idea of problematizing a social condition rather than an individual. And with the example of gun violence that we see in the States with mass shootings, you know, we see all of these examples. And the one thing that they have in common is that the shooter is always a white boy or young man. And rather than, you know, it doesn't take a social scientist to say, there's something going on here that reflects a pattern. (laughs) And yet, every time it happens, we jump really quickly into this narrative about mental health, which is rooted in in the individual. Like what was going on with this distressed individual that felt bullied or felt disenfranchised? When we have this pattern, we have a problem with a social condition. And the social condition has to do with masculinity. And that's not to say that there's something wrong with boys and men, but there's something going on that's structural, that's bigger than an individual. And if we don't address that, we'll never have change. Right. So I wanted to go back to, to this movement, to the, the autonomous movement. So I want to talk about the climate with which it, it grew and some of the major events that were happening. So one of the things that happened was the, you know, the ban on abortions, mm-hmm. right? The cr- criminalization of abortions. Mm-hmm. And following that, one of the things that happened is that lots of women were victims of violent sexual assault. So one of the well-known cases that gained international attention in Nicaragua happened in, in, in 2003. And the situation in 2003 involved a young girl who was nine years old who was given the pseudonym Rosita. And Rosita lived in Costa Rica with her migrant parents and became pregnant at nine years old as a result of sexual abuse. And her parents took her back to Nicaragua with the hope of having a therapeutic abortion. And therapeutic abortion was still controversial in Nicaragua, but it was largely accepted that if an abortion was required to save a woman's life, then it was permitted. And her parents were making the case that it was alarming and disturbing to consider that a nine-year-old might actually bear a child. And so activists within the women's autonomous movement, nine of them supported this girl. And then years later, during the 2006 presidential campaigning, Daniela Ortega, the current president who was coming back into power, colluded with the Catholic Church and it became criminalized. Therapeutic abortion became criminalized. So what happened was that Nicaragua became one of six countries in the whole world that disallowed abortion in any form. And when Ortega took office in 2007, Ortega retrospectively went after the nine women who supported this girl and charged them with the crime of aiding and abetting abortion and disregarding that it happened four years prior when it was legal. So it was a very clear act of political persecution. These women went to jail. There was international attention. Amnesty International had to step in to recognize their human rights. And so there was a sort of a pattern of starting to politically persecute the women who were coming forward and being active to create change or stand up for women's human rights. Also, can you talk a bit about Law 779, the Violence Against Women Law? The example of this Law 779 is a great example to illustrate why this coordinated mobilization makes a difference. And not just the coordinated mobilization, but the principles of resistance that go behind it. So Law 779 is also titled the Comprehensive Law Against Violence Toward Women. And the word comprehensive there is important, and it was strategic. 
the women's movement had been working on violence against women since the 90s, and they very strategically used international treaties that addressed human rights to acknowledge that violence against women was a problem. And as a result of that mobilization, they were able to enact a law in 1996 that recognized domestic violence. But what they found over time, because they were not a political power differences between women and men, the law was often misused to recognize what people called family violence that disregarded that women were at particular risk of the receipt of violence from intimate partners. So what the women's movement wanted to do was to recognize that there was something inherent about being a woman, that the gendered power structure present in society was rooted in a social or, or, or economic inequity that put women at risk for violence. So they put forward a law that recognized that we needed legislative change that could undermine our dominant ideology. In other words, we needed to get laws on the books that recognized the power differences between men and women, and not just acknowledge that violence was a crime, but that it was being committed based on an abuse of power. So they wrote a law, and in the first article of that law, one of the things that they say is that the explicit objective of the law is to protect women's human rights. And, and out of the gate, that differs from the way that we think about domestic violence. Yeah. So in the United States, we don't talk about domestic violence as a human rights violation. We talk about it as a public health concern, for example. And so they were very strategic about likening it or linking it rather to women's human rights. And in that same article, they said the intent of the law was to promote changes in the sociocultural and patriarchal patterns that underpin the relations of power. So this is part of why they're calling it comprehensive. They are looking at the sociocultural context by which violence against women occurs. And that was passed into law in 2012. And it was considered revolutionary. What happened here was extraordinary. There are few other countries that have laws that recognize male abuses of power in the law. It unfortunately has since come under attack in Nicaragua, but the passing of that law in the National Assembly in 2012 was considered revolutionary. Yeah, you know, and I hadn't thought about it. It is quite extraordinary. And, you know, when I was reading about this law, I kept reading the word femicide, right, which is something that we don't use very often in, in the States or in the West, right? We talk about homicide and within the umbrella of homicide is, you know, violence against women. Right. But they specifically want to call out violence against women at the hands of men because of this patriarchal structure. That's right. And they they take it one step further. So the you know, in Spanish, femicide is the acknowledgement of being killed, the killing of women only because they are women. But there's an additional term that doesn't translate into English, femininicide, which acknowledges it's not just the killing of women for being women, but it's the killing of women in the context of a gendered power structure that allows these male abuses of power. And so that is happening throughout Latin America is there's a recognition that we need to use language that acknowledges these gender differences in power. And as you pointed out, we do not do that in the United States. We don't have precise language that calls out these differences and abuses of power. Right. That's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just a little bit blown away about, about how advanced they are in this movement in comparison to, to where we are. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a bit about some of the women in the movement, starting with its first elected leader. Mm -hmm. um, what made her stand out as a leader? Well, one of the things that's unique about Juanita, and, and the women in the book have different social locations from which they were working and different experiences. A number of them had experiences in the Sandinista movement. But one of the things that I think was unique about Juanita is that she was trained as a lawyer. And one of her first posts after the revolution was won, it was in the military courts. So this is an example 
where a woman was fighting. She was also trained as a, as a teenager in guerrilla warfare, and she was uh, running youth groups and organizing them as coffee pickers and marching. You know, she told me stories of marching through the streets with rifles slung on her shoulder, taking all these kids into the fields. So she had a very atypical experience as a girl coming of age and as a young woman was appointed in a very high-powered position in the military courts. Nevertheless, her experiences allowed her to witness what she termed as contradictions and recognizing that many of the things that were being fought for were not actually allowing freedoms for all people. And in particular, many of the disparities she was witnessing were based on gender. Right. There was one point in the book where you were interviewing her and you asked her about the meaning of feminism. And she talked about, you know, Mexican feminists and South American and Central American feminists, but she excluded, explicitly excluded Western feminism. And I thought that was really interesting. I I think maybe one of the reasons for that, I can't necessarily explain that for her, but one of the things that's true about Nicaraguan women and transnational feminism in general is a recognition of global policies and the extent to which they create a context for the violations of women's human rights. And so I think a lot of times in the West or in the United States in particular, we are very uninformed about the consequences of our economic policies for other women. But when you live in a country where your your mama might work for a banana plantation owned by Dole, or you may be working in a factory owned by a U.S. company, or your country just went through a decades-long war supported by the U.S., you are very clear about how women's human rights are being violated in a global process. And so that could be one of the reasons why people aren't pulling in Western feminism, because Western feminism in general has not acknowledged the extent to which these global policies, largely driven by the U.S., are impacting women's human rights across the world. So you also talk about a member, a Black member of the movement. I think her name was Matilde, right? Um, Matilde. She was mm-hmm. Matilde, right. And so um, and she wanted to bring in the idea of intersectionality within this movement. I'm just curious as to what intersectional feminism means within this movement for them. Uh, Well, I think that intersectional feminism would be pretty similar to the way that we would define it in the States, which is acknowledging that we can't achieve gender justice without recognizing the varying experiences of oppression and how those overlapping experiences of discrimination may impact women. And that way, I don't think the understanding of intersectionality in Nicaragua is different. But I think what would be added to it is an understanding of how in addition to the experiences of racism or sexism or classism, there's also the experience of being, again, in a global world. And so I think that I would add that to their understanding of intersectionality, that's maybe a transnationally intersectional approach that recognizes how these global economic policies impact women. I'm just curious as to what unique issues would intersectionality in that context bring in? Because, I mean, if you take, for instance, in the States, intersectionality may mean for women of color, you know, how they interact with the police, for instance, right? Like violence at the hands of of the police, right? And so what unique issues would would someone like Matilde deal with within Nicaragua? Uh, well, so the issue of, of race and racism in Nicaragua is a bit different than the United States, partly because most of the country is relatively homogenous. And that is because of the geography of the country. So most Black Nicaraguans live on the Caribbean coast. The geography of the country does not make passing over certain regions easy. And, and in fact, you have to fly. Most people have to fly, which they don't do. So there's not a lot of cross-race work. Not a lot. There is some being done, but that's not one of the predominant issues. But on the Caribbean coast where the Black Nicaraguans live, there are also issues of indigeneity that are not being recognized throughout most of Nicaragua. And
And that particular region of Nicaragua has a, a long and unique history with the U.S. The U.S. has had involvement all over the country, but on the eastern coast, the Caribbean coast, the U.S. Marines had a longstanding history in Nicaragua to control areas of the land where companies like gold mining companies, for example, wanted to establish residence. So many of the issues that people were working on were intersectional. So they weren't uh, only based on race, despite that Black and Nicaraguans were from the East Coast. They were also based on economic policies that were unique to those regions. So one of the other fights that they have to grapple with there that we don't have here in the West is the, I guess, the fight over agriculture, Mm -hmm. right? And land ownership, right? So how is that unique? Well, in, in most of the majority world, and what I mean is most of the world, most countries, land is a marker of dominance in status. You know, who owns land or property is also reflected in who has power and control in certain areas, which is also the case in Nicaragua. Land means something. And it's also a very gendered issue. Throughout the world, most of the property, however we define it, is owned by men. And women in Nicaragua who are mobilizing thought about a number of different sectors where power or the disenfranchisement from power was impacting women. So it might be things like healthcare reproductive health care specifically, education. But land was also one of the areas that they concentrated a lot of their mobilization and efforts. Women were recognizing that this disproportionate power in society that men had was partly allowed by these structural inequities in terms of land ownership. So several organizations mobilized in Nicaragua to, to try to substantially challenge gender roles by allowing women access to and ownership of land. So, you know, it's interesting that you talk about the majority versus the minority, because when I was reading your book, it really brought to to light that we are the minority in terms of feminism in the West, right? Like most of the women in the world deal with feminism and, you know, sexism, uh, you know, and oppression against women in the way that the women here deal with it and not in the way that we deal with it. But we have this tendency to think that we have the way Mm -hmm. to guide them. I don't know what to say about that. You're absolutely right. And I think it's a really unfortunate thing, you know, across disciplines, people talk about that in various ways. It's not just with feminism that we do that, but the West feels like we can evaluate the rest of the world. And what's really unfortunate about that is that there's this perception that we think we have it figured out. And yet we are one of the only countries that won't sign on to the United Nations Bill of Women's Human Rights. So the CEDAW convention, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, is largely viewed as an international convention on women's rights, and the U.S. won't sign it. And at the same time feels this entitlement to police women's issues throughout the world. The other really concerning part about that is taking this example of women in Nicaragua. You know, we could be thinking about women's issues again and not realize the extent to which they're interrelated or to the extent to which we may be passively in collusion for them. So one concrete example could be that we're wearing a pair of jeans sewn by a woman in Nicaragua and have no awareness of how our choices and our country's policies put a woman in a position to have to sew those jeans for us without making a living wage. And we could stop and think, okay, well, I want to learn more about this. How is this happening? And we learn that this factory was put into an area that was duty-free and tariff-free, and the U.S. company is allowed to work there and export these products like jeans without women being paid a living wage. And we think, okay, well, I feel kind of guilty about that, but you know, at least she has a job. 
without recognizing the context of that. The reason that she might not have had a job or had been unemployed is partly because we waged a 10-year war on that country that impacted social services and impacted job opportunities. So it's impossible to understand women's experiences without recognizing how interconnected we are in, in many ways, how responsible we are. So it would be beyond ironic for us to sit in the West and evaluate women's issues elsewhere as if we have it figured out when not only do we not have it figured out, but we are in collusion to exacerbate women's situations here and elsewhere. Also, I know that education played a big role in the movement. Can you talk a bit about that? So Yamilet Mahaya was one of the women involved in the movement, and one of her main issues was about education. And education was particularly important to her in part because she was raised as a daughter who had a mother working in the banana plantations. And the banana plantations have a long history in Nicaragua going back to the late 1800s. And part of the reason that's relevant is it's, again, another example of the interconnection between countries with the U.S., having several companies or corporations in Western Nicaragua, for example, Dole, Del Monte, and, and United Fruit. And not only were they engaging in an exploitation of labor, but they were also using uh, pesticides that created harmful conditions ranging from sterility to cancer to death. And Yamilet was raised by a mother who needed to work 14 hours a day in these banana plantations and as a result was unable to extend her education beyond second grade. So Yamilet developed a very early aware bringing awareness to the masses in part through formal education. And she sort of warned us that the consequence of not doing so included ignorance. And I'd just like to read a quote of hers that I think is relevant in our own times right now. Yamilet said, as long as you keep people in the dark, not knowing anything, of course you will be able to do what you wish with them and manipulate them. Ignorance is the best friend of abusive people's manipulation. And, and so that was very relevant for Yamila and her family, but I think it's also really relevant for us to think about how we want to use education and knowledge to contribute to addressing problems caused by social inequities. So what should we be doing as feminists here in the West to learn from these women and so that we can advance our agenda in similar ways? Uh, Well, I think one of the things we need to learn is how to mobilize and how to recognize that our issues really are connected. And even in this example of the banana plantation, there are values that we have in the States that are actually quite good. People would recognize education and girls' access to education as a very important thing they want to support without recognizing, in the example I just gave, that girls' access to education is threatened by the presence of a U.S. company that needs to exploit labor and girls are going to go into the labor force early rather than get an education. So I think we need to start to become educated about these global policies and our role in them before we could advocate for changing them. Well, Shelley Graby, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for the invitation. It was an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of The Electorette. Visit us at electorette.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The Electorette is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorette. And until next time, keep up the good fight.